This podcast covers serious crimes and subject matter that may be distressing to some audience members. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of True Crime on Our Minds. I'm Dawn and with me as always is my sister and co-host Debbie. How's it going? Good. I'm a bit tired. Last week, as you know, I was in Illinois visiting my son and his family when I recorded the episode four. I apologize for the acoustics, but I had to fashion a makeshift studio out of my grandson's playroom. I sat in a little kitty-sized recliner while propping my computer and microphone up on his train table. I'm back at home to record again this week. You getting ready for your trip? Oh, I'm so stressed out trying to get everything done. But I just had this vision of like, if we had video of everywhere that we record, I'm trying every room in my house to find the perfect place to record it. And I still don't know. Right now I'm on my closet floor. So we just do what we can. Yes, we do. And I wanted to say something about last week's episode. After we recorded it, and I had that long trip back from Illinois, I got on the body donation sites. And, you know, I'd never signed up for anything like that. In Tennessee, you can sign up when you sign up your license, but it doesn't go into a national database. So I did some research and I've signed up to be an organ donor. I'm very proud of myself. Good job. I'm proud of you too. Well, I'm an organ donor, but I'm still not to the point where I'm ready to donate the rest of whatever's left of me to science yet. No. But maybe I'll get there. I'm just a <laughs> living organ donor. So if, you know, if I was declared brain dead, they could take any of my organs. But no, I want to be buried in my comfy pajamas with socks on my feet and slippers because I want to be comfortable in the afterlife. Well, is there um, was there a national website that you went to? Maybe we can post that to our website for anybody who is interested in checking that out. Uh, yes, I believe the site was called Donate Life. I'll send you the link to post. I work in a hospital, and so I was asking whenever we have a death, we have to call um, the tissue bank, and they decide whether or not they want to contact the family about donations. So I kind of went through asking people at work and finding out and made sure I was signing up with someplace reputable. Oh, great. So should we get started? Yes, let's do. So today we are covering the Lillilid murders that happened in 1997. This is a very disturbing story and involves the murder of children. So listeners, please be advised that this material may not be for everyone. So this week's fact or crap is actually a county, Greene County, Tennessee, where the murders took place. Are you ready to test your knowledge? Uh, what knowledge? I don't even know where Greene County is. I barely know where Tennessee is. So hopefully it's not a geography related question because I am absolutely the worst. Yeah, I'm not great at geography. So you're lucky. No, this is more a history question. So one of Greene County's famous residents was Andrew Jackson, who moved there in 1826 and set up a tailor shop. True or false? Oh, is it true or false? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, what's the rest of it? <laughs> is this true or false? <laughs> Andrew Jackson. Hmm. Let's see. I'm going to say true. It is false. 
but close. Andrew Johnson was the famous resident. In 1829, he was chosen as alderman and became Greenville's mayor in 1834. For the next 30 years, he served in both Tennessee and U.S. legislatures. He became the 17th president of the U.S. upon the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So there's a little history for you. Well, great. We can always learn some more about our history because I was kind of like, Andrew, who? (laughs) (laughs) I need to go back and revisit all the presidents. So as Debbie said, today's story involves the Lily Lid family from Knoxville, Tennessee. Vidar Lily Lid was 34 years old and born in Bergen, Norway. In 1985, he immigrated to Miami, Florida to pursue a better life. How can you get much better than Norway? I I would love to live in Norway. Yeah, Miami, (laughs) Norway. Mm. Well, he obviously didn't really know what Miami Miami was about. <laughs> there he met Delphina Zelaya. I think that's pretty close. A Honduran American from New Jersey. They were both Jehovah Witnesses and had met through their involvement in that community. They were married in 1989, and in 1991, their daughter Tabitha was born. Shortly after, Vidar and Delphina decided there was too much crime in Miami, but they had previously hiked in the Great Smoky Mountains and really loved it there, so that's where they decided to move their family. They ended up in Knoxville, Tennessee. And in 1995, their son Peter was born. Vidar worked as a bellman at a Holiday Inn, and Delphina was a homemaker. They had recently moved into an older home and spent their time fixing it up. In early 1997, they drove 105 miles northeast to Johnson City, Tennessee, where they were going to attend the annual religious conference of the Jehovah's Witness. After the conference was over, some friends invited them to dinner, but the weekend had been long and expensive, so the Lilliads declined and headed home on Interstate 81. This same weekend, six teens were partying at the Cawley Motel in Pikeville, Kentucky. They were Natasha Cornett, Edward Mullins, Joseph Reisner, Karen Howell, Jason Bryant, and Crystal Sturgill. Okay, so we have a lot of people to keep straight here in this episode. So we're going to start by giving you some background on the six teens. Natasha Cornett was born January 1st, 1979 in rural Pike County in eastern Kentucky. Her mother, Madonna Wallen, had gotten pregnant with Cornette, but not with her husband. She became pregnant with Cornette when she was having an affair with a police officer named Roger Burgess. Madonna left her husband, Ed Wallen, and raised Cornette as a single mother. She had many affairs and was unable to sustain a healthy relationship with men. Money was often very scarce. Mother and daughter lived in a trailer in Pikeville, Kentucky, where Madonna would often let Cornette's friends stay over, but she provided no adult supervision. So already, you can see that Cornette was not being raised in a nurturing environment. As she got older, she dressed in what is known as goth, black clothing, black dyed hair, body piercings, and dark nail polish and eyeliner. She also abused drugs and alcohol at a very young age and was just 13 when she became sexually active. At the age of 14, Cornette was arrested for stealing a box of checks and committing forgery. For that charge, she received one year probation. Cornette was arrested a second time for assaulting her mother and threatening to kill her with a knife. Madonna ended up dropping those charges. For a time, Cornette lived with her grandmother, who had to be resuscitated during surgery. And after that happened, she claimed that she could see things and talk to dead people. I see dead people. This fueled Cornette's interest in the occult. Also, at the age of 14, she attempted suicide. She was diagnosed with anorexia 
manic depression, and bipolar disorder and prescribed lithium and Prozac. Well, lithium is no mm-hmm. joke. By the time she turned 15, Cornette was using cocaine, heroin, ecstasy, and acid. She dropped out of school at the age of 16 and a year later married Stephen Cornette. The marriage lasted 10 months after which Cornette moved to New Orleans, where she panhandled and lived on the streets. And I read that basically her husband drove up to her mother's house, dropped her off, and then pulled away and never came back. While in New Orleans, um, Cornette claimed that she was gang raped and she moved back to Kentucky to live with her mother. When interviewed by psychiatrists after the murder, she claimed to see spirits and believed in Satan, but didn't worship him or believe in human or animal sacrifices. Cornette also claimed that she believed in God. Which kind of seems contrary. I don't know. I guess if you believe in God, you believe in hell too, but... Well, and I know further in the story, and, and we'll be getting to that, but there is a comment about her religious beliefs. So Edward Dean Mullins was 19 and he was Cornette's boyfriend. He was born January 26, 1978 in Harold, Kentucky. He quit school in his senior year, but was working on getting his GED. Mullins had worked at a grocery store in Pikeville, but was unemployed at the time of the crimes. He had no prior record and had lived at home with his parents and attended church until he began his involvement with Cornette. Mullins moved in with her and they planned to marry. I guess she wasn't a positive influence. Joseph Reisner, 20, was born October 13, 1976 in Hazard, Kentucky. He had never met his real father and took his stepfather's name. After his parents separated, Reisner moved with his mother from Georgia to Kentucky. He claimed that he had had sex with two of his babysitters by the age of 12. Reisner had no juvenile record. He began a downward spiral, failing 7th and 8th grade and using marijuana, alcohol, and LSD. Reisner often smoked marijuana with his mother and second stepfather, Larry Castle. His grades improved by sophomore year at Betsy Lane High School, which is where he met four of the members in the group. Reisner briefly dated Cornette. He joined the Army in 1995, but was discharged for testing positive for marijuana. He enrolled at Betsy Lane High School, but again left in March of 1996. He attempted to return later, but was denied because by that time he was too old to be in high school. So he was at Betsy Lane High School, left to join the Army, was discharged, went back, left again, and then tried to return again? Yes. Mm -hmm. I guess he just wasn't feeling he fit in. Anyway, he did get his GED in 1996 and began attending Mayo Technical College. He was the oldest of the group and was dating Karen Howell, who he had first met and dated in 1995 when he was 18 and she was 15. Let's start talking about her. Karen Howell, 17, was born September 25, 1979 in Delaware, Ohio. She moved to Kentucky at the age of three. Her parents had violent fights before divorcing when she was nine. Howell was borderline intellectually disabled. I know that they used the R word, and so I tried to replace it with intellectually disabled. Her IQ was only 78, so she had a very low IQ. She claimed she was sexually abused from the ages of 5 to 10 by her uncle and a cousin. She began cutting herself at age 13, used drugs, practiced witchcraft, and ran away from home. She moved in briefly with her father during her freshman year before dropping out of school. Howell used LSD and claimed to hear voices and attempted suicide four times. 
times. So the fact that she and Coronet had so much in common really sealed their bond. And in fact, Howell would often say that Cornette was her soulmate. Next, we have Jason Bryan, 14, born July 18, 1982 in Hellier, Kentucky. He was the youngest of the group. Bryant had the emotional and social skills of an 11-year-old and an IQ of 85, so just slightly higher than Howell. He had a history of alcohol abuse starting at the age of three and drug abuse starting at the age of nine. How do you start abusing alcohol at the age of three? I have no idea, but then... We wouldn't. We weren't raised in those kind of environments. So records from 1996 indicated that he was beyond the school's control and he was referred to a day treatment program. Also that year, he was declared a habitual runaway and ordered intensive home supervision and counseling. Unlike the others, he did not attend Betsy Lane High School, but was going to a different high school at the time. He met Cornette in March of 1997. He was standing on a street corner when she drove by. So she took him home with her, gave him alcohol, and he spent the night at her house. She claims that she did not know at the time that he was 14. And I guess he did look like he was older and It seemed that he was pretty smitten with her. He also let her carve his initials in his arm just to show that, you know, he was a big man, not afraid of anything. Crystal Sturgill, 18, was the last member of the group. She was born on March 31st, 1979 in Harold, Kentucky, and also didn't know her father. According to reports, Sturgill was smart and did well in school. She was part of a co-op program where she worked as a daycare worker at an elementary school. Sturgill was a senior in high school and had applied to several colleges, hoping to study to be a child psychologist. She suffered neglect and abuse at home and accused her stepfather, Jean Blackburn, of sexual abuse beginning when she was four years old and only stopping when she began dating her boyfriend, Patrick Charles. Her mother, Teen Blackburn, refused to believe this even after Blackburn confessed. This caused division at home, and Sturgill was placed in a foster home for a few days before moving in with her aunt. She didn't stay at her aunt's house for long, though, because uh, she wanted her out. The aunt's son was coming back to live, and she wanted her out. So from December to April, she stayed at 13 different places, and as a last resort, ended up staying at Cornette's, even though they were not close friends. And I think of all of them, her, her story really struck me as the saddest. That really is sad. I mean, what kind of mother doesn't protect her child when her husband has admitted to, you know, to sexually abusing her? And she just seemed to have the most promise. So I just think that that it is really sad. Well, it really sounds like all of the teens had some form of dysfunctional family life or were abusing drugs and alcohol at a very young age. And it was almost like they were drawn to each other and they shared in this certain amount of misery. And that can be a very dangerous thing. So on Friday, April 4th, the group was partying at the Collie Motel in Pikeville. Cornette decided she was bored with Kentucky and wanted to go back to New Orleans. She convinced the other five to head to New Orleans with her to start their lives over. They stole two handguns, a 9mm and a 25 caliber, some money, and Reisner's mother's Chevy Citation. 
By the time the 16s reached mile marker 41 on Interstate 81, it had become clear that the Citation probably would not make it all the way to New Orleans. The car was old and was only meant to carry four people, not the six that were packed inside of it. They decided they would need to steal a car to finish the trip. They pulled into the rest stop with plans to hotwire a car, but there were a lot of people there, a lot more than they were anticipating. The Lily Lids had stopped at the rest area at mile marker 41 because two-year-old Peter had an earache and was being fussy. Remember those days. Fidar Lilylid was walking around carrying Peter while Daphina took six-year-old Tabitha to the restroom. Fidar noticed Natasha Cornette and Karen Howell and approached to witness to them about God and his faith, which is part of Jehovah's Witness. That's what they do is they witness, which means they share their faith, talked about people about their faith. When he asked them if they believed in God, Cornette responded no, that God had never helped her. So she said when she was questioned after the murders, she said she believed in Satan. But then again, she said she believed in God. So she doesn't know if she's coming or going. No. uh -uh. And um, I think she kind of missed the whole point of religion because he'd never helped her. I can see at that age, though, you're very self-involved. Brian and Reisner soon joined them and Vider pulled out a pamphlet and asked if they wanted to learn more about God. Delfina with Tabitha also joined them, and while Vidar held Peter, he continued to witness to the group. Reisner, meanwhile, went back to the car and retrieved the gun, telling Mullins and Sturgill, who were still sitting in the car, to be ready. Reisner pulled the gun on the family and said, quote, I hate to do you this way, but we're going to have to take you with us and take your van, unquote. Vidar pleaded with the group to just take his keys and wallet and leave them at the rest area, but Reisner refused. Vidar drove the van while Reisner rode in the front passenger seat and held the 9mm gun on him. In the middle row next to little Peter in his car seat sat Cornette, Howell, and Bryant, who had the 25 caliber gun. Delphina and Tabitha sat in the back row of the seats. Delphina began to sing to the children to keep them calm, but Bryant yelled at her to shut the F up. Howell said that when she smiled at Tabitha, the little girl reached over and offered her a little Hershey kiss. That kind of just breaks my heart. Mullins and Sturgill followed behind in the citation as Reisner forced Vidar to drive back onto the interstate and to the next exit where he had them turn onto a deserted gravel road called Payne Hollow Lane. Reisner made the family get out of the van and line up next to a ditch. At 8.20 p.m., neighbors and a contractor who was in the area to work on a water tower called police to say they had heard gunshots and voices that sounded like children playing on a playground. When the police arrived, they noticed the Chevy Citation abandoned and empty with the license plates missing. They also found the four bullet-ridden bodies of the Lillilid family. Tabitha lay on top of her father with a gunshot to her head. They heard her whimper and realized she was still alive. She was rushed to UT Medical Center where she later died. And I read that she was declared brain dead and her uncle donated her organs. So that kind of ties into what we're talking about. Yeah, some good came out of it. Yeah. Vidar was dead with five gunshot wounds, one to his right eye and four more into his torso. Three of the shots formed a perfect triangle on his upper body. Delphina was dead with eight gunshots, the first in her arm, then one to her thigh that shattered her bone. The rest of the shots were to her back. She didn't die immediately, and it was estimated that she probably lived for another 20 minutes watching her children being gunned down. It was also reported that she had a triangular pattern of gunshot wounds. 
Peter lay on top of his mother with his face buried in the mud. He had been shot twice, once in the head behind his right ear, which exited out of his right eye, and another in his torso. I read that when the police officer got there, he thought that Peter was dead, um, but his face was buried in the mud, and he got there, you know, just in the nick of time. If he'd been there much longer, he most likely would have suffocated in the mud. When they lifted him up, they discovered he was still alive and he was rushed to the hospital. He would miraculously survive though he would be blind in his right eye and require a prosthetic. He also would need several surgeries in order to walk again. There are differing opinions as to whether the parents were holding the children as they were shot or if they had been moved after the shootings. Most believe the bodies were moved. And there's a lot of speculation about that. Did the bodies fall where they were shot or were they intentionally placed to look like they were in an upside down cross? I read a lot of different uh, speculation on how the bodies were actually positioned when they were found. Yeah, I read that too. And and the teens later would deny that they moved the bodies. But then the pathologist, uh, medical examiner said that the parents couldn't have been holding the children and, and had them fall in the position that they were. So again, I don't know if we'll ever really know the answer to that. While leaving the crime scene, Mullins had gotten the Chevy stuck on a tree stump. Reisner emptied out the car, grabbed the license plate, and they all piled into the Lillian's stolen van. After seeing police at a restaurant they had stopped at, the group became nervous and decided to head to Mexico instead of New Orleans. When they tried to enter Mexico, they were denied entry because they didn't have the proper paperwork. The Mexican authorities sent them back to the U.S. border crossing at Douglas, Arizona. Their computer system had been down all day, so they hadn't been able to run any license plate checks. Fortunately, the computers had come up just when the van drove up and they were able to check the license plates. A check of the license plate showed that it was stolen and that the occupants were considered armed and dangerous. The agent pulled out his gun and ordered the group out of the van. They were taken by surprise and complied without a fight. The officer was afraid he he could just see these teenagers. He didn't know if they were going to come out shooting, but Reisner later said he knew that they were going to be arrested. Well, and here's a couple of things, too. You know, you take the license plates off of the Chevy, but you leave the Chevy there, which obviously can be identified by the VIN. So I don't think stupid they, on their yeah, part. I don't think they knew there was able to be traced with the VIN number. And then they leave the license plates on the van afterwards, yeah. knowing that it was obviously going to be reported stolen. And I believe that this is a couple of days after the murders when they were actually caught. So two days. Mm-hmm. Yes. So they weren't on the run very long. <laughs> How did they think they were going to get into Mexico with no papers? Well, we've already established that many of the members of that gang had low IQs, but even the older members, the oldest being 20, didn't seem to really have thought out what they were doing, which we'll get get back to later. C. Berkeley Bell, District Attorney General of the 3rd Judicial District, which included Greene County, immediately ordered their extradition from Cochise County Jail, where they were being held. D.A. Bell made it clear he intended to seek the death penalty for Cornette, Mullins, Reisner, and Sturgill. They were all over the age of 18. Howell and Bryant were under 18 years of age and as such were not eligible to receive the death penalty. Bell would seek life without parole for those juveniles. Outrage swept across Tennessee over the murder and capture of the teens responsible for the deaths of the Lily Lid family. In Knox County, a convenience store owner hung six nooses from a scaffold in front of his store. Meanwhile, requests by the defendants for separate trials were denied because it was feared the cost of six trials 
trials would bankrupt the county. Also because of the publicity, jurors would have to be bused in from Bradley County, which is located 150 miles south. The trial was set for March 1998. Psychiatrists conducted interviews with some of the defendants. Dr. Miller interviewed Karen Howell and concluded that she suffered from bipolar disorder, depression with psychotic features, and post-traumatic stress. Uh, Dr. Sadoff interviewed Natasha Cornett and reported that she was clearly mentally and emotionally disturbed and has been for a number of years, but that she was not psychotic or out of touch with reality, and she was not insane at the time of the murders. Joseph Reisner was interviewed by Dr. Margaret Robbins. She concluded that he had borderline personality disorder and polysubstance abuse. Dr. Robbins reported that he was remorseful for the crimes and would not be a behavior problem while in Incarcerated. The defendants were offered a plea deal that would spare them from the death penalty. And I believe this happened when Bell was actually in Bradley County selecting the jurors. I think he came to the decision that maybe he would make this offer to them and that they would take it and save the cost of any trial. The deal was they would plead guilty to three counts of first degree murder and one count of attempted murder in exchange for three life sentences and 25 years for attempted murder to be served consecutively. D.A. Bell made it clear this was an all or nothing deal. All six had to accept the plea or no one got the deal. On February 20th, 1998, all six pled guilty and accepted the life sentences without the possibility of parole. Later, all of them filed appeals challenging the decision to deny them separate trials. They each claimed that they didn't pull the trigger and thus should not have received the same sentence as all of the others. Each defendant gave the same version of events up to the point where the lily lids were forced out of the van at Payne Hollow Lane. Mullins, Reisner, Cornette, Howell, and Sturgill all claimed that Bryant was the lone shooter. They said he ordered the family to line up by the ditch and that they could hear the Lilylids crying and begging for their lives. Reisner said he had given the 25 caliber gun to Cornette, who then placed it on the floor of the van. They stated they also tried to get Bryant to spare the family, but that Bryant refused, saying they would call the police. He did promise that he would not harm the children. At this, Cornette and Howell said they returned to the van where Reisner had remained. Bryant then shot Vidar first, followed by Delphina, Tabitha, and then Peter. They claim Bryant then returned to the van, shouting that the family was not dead, retrieved the second gun from the floorboard, and began shooting them again. Afterward, they said Bryant laughed and bragged about the killings. Reisner claimed that he accidentally ran over the bodies as he was turning the van around. Yes, because they had said that Delphina was actually still alive when she was run over. Bryant refutes this testimony, and he claims that it was Reisner and Mullins who did the shootings and that Reisner shot Vidar first. He said that he kept his eyes closed the entire time and that he never fired either weapon. Afterward, he said that Mullins and Reisner ordered everyone into the van and that as they left, Reisner swerved and purposely ran over the bodies. He said they then drove to a gas station and bought a map. Bryant said the other defendants wanted him to take the blame for the shooting because he was the youngest and would not get the death penalty. He said when he hesitated, Reisner shot him in the hand and leg. The others said that this wound was self-inflicted, that he had been playing with the gun and it had gone off and he had shot 
about himself. The other five all agreed that Sturgill and Mullins did not get out of the Chevy when they reached the murder site until after all the shootings when they were ordered to get into the van. It was found that Bryant had gunshot residue all over him, and the courts felt that he was definitely one of the shooters, if not the only one. Mullins also had gunshot residue on his sweater. In the end, their appeals were all denied. The court stated that even if they didn't personally pull the trigger, that they also did nothing to stop the murders. They also said that they were all equally culpable in the crimes because they did nothing to stop it from occurring and fled afterward without reporting the crime. So if Mullins reportedly didn't get out of the Chevy, how did he end up with gunshot residue on his clothing? I don't know. Maybe if he brushed up. Got into some kind of altercation with. Right. I mean, if Bryant was covered in it and he brushed up against him or anything, couldn't you get it that way? It didn't say that he didn't say how much he had on him or what location on his sweater. It just said in the appeal that he did have gunshot residue on him. Reisner didn't and he supposedly shot him. So it's like all sketchy. It's like all over the place. That's just it. I don't think, like I said, that that they, um, I think that there's some truth in both testimonies. Yeah, I agree. The Tennessee Department of Corrections doesn't allow on-site interviews, but Howell and Sturgill did respond to written requests by some reporters. In letters from prison, Howell and Sturgill insisted that they never touched the trigger and that they were pressured into taking the plea deal. Howell said, quote, even though 20 years, my heart still weeps for the heartache that family and friends had to endure and my tears still fall for the victims of the crime. There is not a day that I don't think about Peter Lillylid and wonder how he was doing. I don't believe I should die in prison for the murder. She denies they were a cult and that they didn't perform satanic rituals over the bodies or place them in the shape of a cross. There is also controversy over the motive for the crime. Some believe it was some type of satanic ritual and that Cornette had been wanting to kill someone for a while. This was bolstered by statements that her mother made after Cornette was arrested. Madonna said, a quote, Natasha and them had said they were going to go start the Armageddon, unquote. Others believed it was just a crime of opportunity. They needed transportation and they planned to carjack someone, but they didn't plan on murdering them. When they got to the deserted lane, though, they were all pumped up and fueled by bravado. They may have thought it would impress Cornette and Howell. The Lilliads were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And I think that when you try and wrap your mind around a crime like this, that some people want to believe that Satan has taken over these children, that that kids wouldn't do this to a family. But others said it was just, they just got all caught up in themselves. Well, and it makes you wonder, though, because it's not like they had these guns and carried the guns with them all the time. They purposely stole these guns before they left on this trip to New Orleans. So why would they need guns. Why would they take the time to stop and steal guns before they left town? And that was another thing that came up in the um, the appeals decision, the court's decision on their appeal. It, it said they obviously expected something when they stole weapons and took weapons with them and then held weapons on this family. Right. I mean, they didn't have to make that family go with them. They could have just taken the vehicle, but they didn't. They made the decision to take the family with them. So... It's probably less of a charge to get caught with a stolen vehicle than to spend the rest of your life in prison for the murder of three family members and the attempted murder of a two-year-old. Exactly. I don't understand when people think, I don't want to get caught for this, so I'm going to murder them because, yeah, 
murder is such a much lesser charge than burglary or theft. It's awful. A custody battle ensued between Peter's maternal grandmother and paternal aunt over custody. His aunt won and he lived with her in Sweden. He has a prosthetic eye and can walk unaided, though he does have to use a wheelchair at times. Three years ago, he visited Knoxville and had his picture taken with one of the officers who guarded his hospital door. In 2017, Gina Stafford, a former reporter for the Knoxville News Centennial, who became friends with the family, spoke to Peter by phone. When asked if he would like to say anything to the people of East Tennessee who have thought about him all of these years, she reported, quote, he said, not really. I feel my life is what it is and I'm happy with it. But it's touching to know there are people somewhere else that you can't meet and know by name who care a lot about you. And I appreciate that. It's nice to hear people still care, unquote. Well, it's nice that he seems to have survived this relatively I don't want to say unscathed, but um, that he still has had a good life. On August 24, 2001, Cornette was accused with fellow inmate Krista Pike of attempting to strangle another inmate, Patricia Jones, with a shoelace. However, there was insufficient evidence to convict Cornette, and only Pike was convicted. Krista Pike is the youngest woman to be sentenced to death in the U.S. since the death penalty was reinstated. And I just listened to an episode about her on um, another podcast that we listened to. It was pretty interesting. Yeah, I've heard two podcasts um, about her, and she is very scary and disturbing. Yeah, just the kind of person that Cornette would need to hook up with in prison, right? These are the kind of friends you make in prison. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, that's what we have for this episode. They're all still fighting for their appeals. They're all still serving life in prison. And hopefully that's where they will stay for the rest of their days. Yeah, there was a law that was passed that said that juveniles should not be sentenced to life in prison and that they should only have to serve 51 years before becoming eligible for parole. However, this law has not been enacted. And so Bryant and Howell are still not eligible for parole. And they are all serving their time in various prisons in Tennessee. Did you see if that law does become enacted? Was it retroactive? Would that be any juvenile that was sentenced? I don't know. All I know that it said it would not apply to Bryant and Howell. So he was he was pushing for that, that he could be eligible for parole in 51 years. Still in 51 years. Yeah, 51 years. He's 14, He was 14 years old. This happened in 97. So they've been in jail. 22 years now. It's just so sad. It's only 14. I just can't imagine, mm-hmm. you know. I know. For what? It was absolutely senseless as most of these kinds of crimes and, are. I mean, and the ones that went along with it that didn't, especially Sturgill, who went along and did not stop the shooting did not report the shooting. She's serving the same sentence as those that pulled the trigger. So you need to watch who your your friends are. Oh God, I always tell my kids, if you lay down with dogs, you're going to get fleas. That's what I, I always tell them because it's so true. You got to know who you're hanging around with. Exactly. And, and that's what their appeals said that that they had to be aware of the mindset because of um, the previous talk 
of Cornette about killings, the drug use, that they had to know this was an explosive situation. So there we go. That's our episode for this week. In two weeks, we'll we'll be back with another episode. You want to tell them what that one's going to be? Sure. So we're going to go back to South Carolina to um, to cover the story of Missy McLaughlin. This is a very unusual case and I will forewarn you that it has been labeled a hate crime, and we're going to try to tread very lightly on that and just go over the facts about this. But it was very much a horrendous crime. It's one that touched me personally in many ways. And and it, it also happened during the time that the Lowcountry Rapist was on the loose. It happened in at the end of 1992 and then going into 1993 um, was the, the capture, the trials of the perpetrators. So we would We'll tell that one and look forward to another week. And then in October, we will actually be able to record face to face when you Yay, come. It'll be so much fun. When you come for my daughter's <laughs> wedding. Yay. Because right now we record with a two hour time difference. And um, that's why we're we're going to biweekly because I work night shift and weekends and she works day shift and long hours and with the two hour difference it gets it gets hard but I enjoy our time spent together yeah and so we're definitely have to find a quiet place to get away just the two of us to record together it'll be exciting to see how that works with us in the same room I'm kind of (laughs) nervous because it will definitely be um, it won't be like recording in a closet or my grandson's playroom but we will definitely be a um, temporary set up there. Well, yeah, and my son Drayton moved out and I was thinking, oh, I'll make that um, his room, my recording studio. And my husband's like, you already have the office. You've confiscated the office. So I get my man cave. <laughs> oh, is that what he's going to do? <laughs> yeah. So little does he know that every room in this house is my room. <laughs> True. Same here. Same here. All right. So you guys have the new schedule. Have a great two weeks. We will be back then. In the meantime, you can check us out on Facebook. If you like what you're hearing, we definitely appreciate a rating and even a comment. Let us know what we can do better and check out our website. We have the previous episodes listed there and photos of the people involved in previous episodes that we've covered. So we'll see you in two weeks. Until then, make good choices. Keep your head on a swivel and stay safe. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of True Crime on Our Minds. Check out our Facebook page and website at truecriminds.com where you can see photos and other information related to episodes and submit recommendations on other crimes. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and provide us with a rating. You can also find us on Patreon and sign up to get extra content and support the show.